And we're going to read just the first eight verses of chapter 56. And this is God's Word. We often, we often say at the start of readings to remind us that this is the Word of God. That this reading actually begins uh, helpfully with those very words, reminding us who is speaking. Isaiah 56, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand. My righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who find, bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who full hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Amen. Um, for those of you who, well, for all of you, whether you were or weren't here this morning, I, I should say we had a wonderful service here this morning. Um, as Monty's already alluded to it, um, learning about God's call on his people to uh, be mindful of vulnerable children as we thought about the work of Home for Good, an organization that's helping us think about fostering and adoption and our role as God's people. It was a brilliant service, very, very full. Lots of stories about members of our congregation whom God was already using in this way. And one thing we didn't get a chance to do much of this morning, in contrast to almost all of our services, is we didn't get much time in God's Word. Um, these evening services um, are, are really quite simple services. Uh, they don't have as many things going on in them as our morning services. And in part, that's deliberate because it does mean we have time to, to have a good look into God's Word. And, and this Isaiah series has really, has really required that. Uh, Isaiah needs a um, bit of time to get a look at this wonderful and, and massive book. So, Chapters 56 and 57, if you have them open before you, uh, you'll have some chance of staying with me. If you don't, uh, I think it'll be difficult for you. If you had a look, um, I have them at the front here, if anybody's brave enough to come and get one. The, the Read Scripture poster that we've given out a couple of times uh, during the series. I don't know if anybody is good. D does anybody bring theirs with them to these? Uh, is that Anne? Anne, do you bring yours with you? No? Yeah. You found one lying in the pew? All oh, right, you were lucky. I thought, I thought Anne, I was just going to big her up here for bringing her Isaiah poster with her. Um, 
if you were looking at your Isaiah poster, or even if you were reading the start of a Bible commentary on the book of Isaiah, it's very likely that whatever way a person chooses to divide this 66-chapter book up, that by the time you get to chapter 56, you're heading into a last section of the whole book. Um, On the Read Scripture poster, they give it a title where they call it The Servants Inherit God's Kingdom. Uh, Another commentator I was reading this week, he he called this last section Waiting for a New World. Brilliant titles. Just the sense that there's going to be something uh, very beautiful at the end of this long book. We're going to be in for a bit of a treat. It's worth taking a moment. We've done this a couple of times along the way where as well as taking our bearings within the book, the text of Isaiah, to take our bearings historically because I think we're, we're moving into another phase. Let me remind you. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah have a pre-exilic emphasis. They're written for people who have not yet gone into the Babylonian exile. They're messages of judgment and hope for Judah and Jerusalem waiting and really with the the exile hanging over them. By the time you get to chapter 40, and we we noticed this when we moved through and into chapter 40, the the timing changes. It jumps forward at, at least a century. And the messages then are messages to the exiles themselves in Babylon. So from chapter 40 through to 45, it's probably, probably right to read it that way. These are, these are messages to people who have come through a judgment but are still experiencing it in exile in Babylon. But things change again now as we move into chapter 56 because we're entering a period where the first exiles have returned from Babylon. Okay? This will help us to understand this text. If you didn't know that, uh, we'd miss something. It's a, it's a part of the history of God's people that we can read in some other books of the Bible. A couple of prophets, uh, well, Ezra and Nehemiah tell the, the narrative version of it, and Haggai and Zechariah, the prophets, deal particularly with this period. So it's, we're getting near the very, very end of the historical record of the Old Testament by the time we get to this stage. This period, I think, if I'm honest, I've been a bit naive about it. I think if somebody had asked me, what must it have been like for the people to come back from exile, I'd have said, that must have been just brilliant. Seventy years uh, away from home and a decree's passed that says... It's all right. You're free to go back to Jerusalem. I think it was much easier for me to imagine the excitement and the anticipation of the returning exiles than to imagine their problems. Let's, let's, let's go that other direction and consider for a moment their problems. So here you are. Your grandparents were removed from Belfast in 1950. All right, 70 years ago. And they emigrated to Spain. So that, that means your parents were born in Spain. You were born in Spain. And actually by now you've had children of your own in Spain. 
you've heard stories about Belfast. You've heard what a great place it was. You've heard how great it would be to, to go and live there. But actually, with every passing year, you've grown more and more settled in Spain. By the way, that's not a million miles away from my story. My parents came to Northern Ireland in 1969, 51 years ago. I'm an ethnic German. I enjoy visiting and traveling in Germany, but by now it would require a huge upheaval just after 51 years for me to decide to go back to Germany with my family and to make it my home. So back back to our scenario, imagining yourself in Spain, the day comes when, when somebody says, right, it's time to go, time to go back to Belfast. And, and you try to make the move, and you discover that rather than a welcome party of streets lined with people to greet you, you discover people who have no idea who you are. You you discover foreigners have moved in and have taken over the neighborhoods where your family once lived. Nobody here is holding their breath waiting for you. Do, Do you see the difficulties that there might be for these returning exiles? And that's before we even describe the the political landscape. So the Jerusalem they're returning to, it's not a free Jerusalem. It's it's got a sort of a limited form of self-rule. It's it's part of the Persian Empire. These folks are heading home, but they're not not free. They're a small population. They're living now with limited resources, and there's neighboring groups all around them who view them with suspicion and sometimes downright hostility. Those are the circumstances into which Isaiah is writing these last chapters of his book. In his commentary, Barry Webb argues, helpfully, I think, he says that the returning exiles are living between the times. The return from the exile had begun, uh, but it wasn't complete. Have a look there at verse 8 of chapter 56. Because the Lord promises these early returning exiles, I'll gather still others to them, besides those already gathered. So there's more people are going to be gathered. The gathering's really only beginning. At this point, there were still Israelites in, in Babylonia. There were some in Egypt and elsewhere. So this glorious age that the prophet's going to talk about, it's, it's, it's starting to dawn, but it's by no means fulfilled. Things weren't as they had been recently, but neither are they fully restored these are in-between times. Actually, this, this is a pattern that we, we need to grasp as the people of God, the already and not yet of God's kingdom. This is interesting for us because we live in in-between times. We live between the first and the second coming of Jesus. Whenever Jesus came, he said, the kingdom of heaven is near. He says, I've brought the kingdom of heaven. But what else did he say? He said, keep praying, thy kingdom come. So so the kingdom has already come, but we want to pray for it to, to more fully come in the future. 
So we're in between times. We're, we're waiting and we're patient. Sometimes this patience stretches some people too far. They find it hard to keep waiting and they give up. Even for those who don't fall away, the waiting has us wondering, how are we supposed to live in these in-between times? These tensions, I think, we're going to see in this final part of Isaiah, and we'll see it in the passage we're going to look at this evening. So let's, let's move into chapters 56 and 57. These folks, they've returned from exile. They've served their punishment. What, what now? What's the reboot going to look like? There's some glorious stuff here. Some of the most beautiful images in Isaiah are still to come. We've seen some glorious ones, some beautiful ones still to come. But there's some really realistic stuff. It's almost disappointing. Because even after the exile, the most traumatic uh, punishment God had ever had to visit on his people, we're going to discover that the, the old weaknesses are still there. The same threats and the same dangers from within are things that God still is going to have to talk to his people about. This community waiting for a new world is going to have to have its wits about it. Tonight we're going to get a good balance of the realism, but also the glory in these final chapters. The way I'm going to tackle this, I want to cover the whole of the two chapters, but very much waiting um, our attention on the first eight verses, the passage we read. So what we're going to do is we're going to start in the middle, read to the end of the two chapters, and then jump back to the start. We're going to see three things. We're going to see the context of our new community. We're going to see comfort for our new community. And we're going to see the nature of our new community. So first of all, the context. The context in which any new community is going to be built. It's not yet a perfect world. We'll see that in the section beginning at chapter 56, verse 9. Cast your eye on this while I offer just a few guiding comments. This passage comes as a rude awakening. I mean, our series here, we've called it a new hope. A couple of weeks ago in chapter 54, we were talking about what God was going to do to restore Jerusalem, and it was brilliant. We talked about a family repopulated, a marriage restored, a city rebuilt. It all sounded so positive, and it sort of sounded like the, the happily ever after. God's people, their troubles, the exiles behind them, their troubles are behind them. Now it's a happily ever after. It's all going to be good from here on in. It's not how Isaiah sees it. It's not the word that God gives through his prophet. This is not yet a perfect world. And he shows us that much is still at stake. The, the focus starts initially with the, the leadership. Judah's leaders here, they're described as, as watchmen in verse 10. They're supposed to be keeping an eye out for danger beyond the community. They're supposed to be shepherds, verse 11, caring for and tending the lambs under their care. Isaiah shows us what happens when that leadership fails. Look at verse 10. When the leaders don't act as watchmen and shepherds, the people are prey to all kinds of evil attack. Look at chapter 57, verses 1 and 2. Good people are attacked 
and no one comes to their defense. You know how that feels, don't you? When you hear a story about, about innocent people being attacked and nobody seems to defend them. Chapter 57 paints a, a pretty depressing picture of what happens in this community when its leadership fails. Verses 3 to 10, we see sorcery, adultery, prostitution, all kinds of perversion. Verse 11, we see that when people don't fear the Lord, they end up fearing everything else. Verses 12 and the early part of 13, whenever the community goes like this, God's left with no option but to judge his people once more. They've come out of the exile. And yet, Isaiah is honest enough to say that the future is not guaranteed. We could have spent a lot more time in, in the detail of this, but I think the overall message of the passage is clear. When we live in the, over, in the in-between times, sin hasn't been eradicated. That won't happen until the very end, the new heavens and the new earth. I don't know what kind of a church you've grown up in. Some churches have what we might call, the, the fancy theological terms, a, an over-realized eschatology. There'll, there'll be a, an ongoing reference to how we're all new creations in Christ. The old is gone and the new has come. That's why we're all such swell people. That's why we're all living perfect lives. And that's why our community is so great. And that might work for a month or two. I think Isaiah brings us to a a more realistic place. The truth is, in the in-between times, I'm going to struggle with sin in my life. And if we're going to be together, we're going to struggle with sin in our community. It's very sobering. In a comment, again, commentator Barry Webb says talks about the importance of leadership in these times. He says, where godly leadership is lacking, old evils come flooding back even after a remarkable experience of God's grace. It proved to be so in the period following the return from exile, and it is still so in the church today. That really spoke to me as I read it. I thought our church is one of those places where we have had one of those extraordinary seasons of grace. There's no room for complacency. There never is. So that's the first thing, the context for our new community. Very quickly, the second thing, comfort for our new community. When you think of what we've just thought about there, you could despair. You think to yourself, well, we've had the exile. We've, we've had our hard times. We've been restored. And still, are, are we still no further? Have we learned nothing? Are we, are we doomed to fail? The passage has a sort of a sweeping feel to it where it starts with the leaders and then appears to be talking about everybody. But it's not The Lord still has faithful people, even in troubled times. Look at chapter 57, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah talks there about the righteous, the devout, those who walk uprightly. 
Look at verse 13, the second part of it. Against a background of the people's unfaithfulness and God's judgment, God says, but whoever takes refuge in me will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. God has something to say to the faithful among the people. And and the message really comes to the fore in verses 14 to 21. We don't have time to delve deeply in this passage, but just now you'll be able to see with a quick glance that whenever God sees the lowly and the contrite, verse 15, he offers them healing and peace, verse 19. So when we add together the message of these two parts that we have read so far, far, the message of the end of chapter 57 with the message of the passage from 56 verse 9 onwards, we see that when we live in in in-between times, we're in a not yet perfect world, but that there are words of comfort for those who continue to walk with God. Folks, I, I think it's important that we learn to find and hear the words of comfort. Because these aren't always easy times. It's in this imperfect world that God is going about bringing a community that shines for him. That's what we're going to focus on for the remainder of our time together this evening. A new community those first eight verses of chapter 56. Very quickly, before we look at this with a wee bit of detail, it looks a bit legalistic all of a sudden. We were thinking in chapter 53 about a suffering servant, one who had died in our place, one who takes our sins so that we can be right with God. It was the essence of the gospel. But now here in the opening verses of chapter 56, we're being told how to live, maintain justice, do what is right, keep the Sabbath. And for those of us who grew up in more legalistic times in the church, we're thinking, ooh, that sounds like the bad old days revisited. How does this work? How does our relationship with God work? Is it, is it by grace chapter 53, or is it by laws reintroduced here in chapter 56? It sometimes seems as if the biblical writers can't make up their mind which it is or, or can't agree with each other. Let's hold our nerve for a second. Remember the Exodus. Do you remember the order of the events there? God saved the slaves from Egypt, and only then did he give them his law. He didn't give them the law in Egypt and say, right, if you keep this law, I'll rescue you. Keep the law and you'll be saved. No. I'll save you. And only after that will I give you the law. Folks, it's the same here in Isaiah this is another stage in the story of redemption. It's, it's, yes, it's hundreds of years later, centuries of failure and judgment have passed, but the pattern, whenever God graciously restores his people from the exile, when he calls them back, 
he then reminds them of their calling. He says, I've brought you back from exile. You're still supposed to be that beautiful people that I always intended you to be. We saw this earlier in Isaiah. You're still supposed to be the light of the world. This kind of a community that shows the world who I am. So that's why these opening verses start telling us quite particularly about the community that God wants after the exile. We're going to notice here and spend the rest of our time noticing three areas where God wants his people to live distinctly. He wants them to think differently from the world about money and work, sex and family, race and power. A few minutes on each of these. So work and money, if you look at chapter 56, verse 1 and 2, God says, maintain justice and do what is right. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it. See what God's saying here. He says, maintain justice and keep the Sabbath, but they're not two separate things. The way to maintain justice is by keeping the Sabbath. That's weird for us. Because we tend to think of the Sabbath as making sure that we get some time off that we get to chillax and de-stress once in the week. But there's more to the Sabbath than getting time off. Deuteronomy chapter 5, God says, On that day, that's the Sabbath, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, your livestock or any foreigners living among you. The Sabbath, we're told, is a reminder of God's liberation from slavery in Egypt. God rescued you from slavery so that you didn't have to work all the time. So don't work all the time to remind you of his liberation from slavery. Let's think about the Sabbath for a moment. Sabbath is weird because if you think about it, if somebody says to you, here's a command, you have to take a rest. Like, on paper, that just sounds brilliant. You get, you get to and you have to rest. Well, it sounds good to me anyway. I don't know about you guys. You have to take a rest. Like that, that's not even a command, is it? That's, that's an invitation. But why can't we do it then? Why is it so hard to receive this gift of the Sabbath? Well, if you think about it, the Sabbath is like a, a deliberate choice to limit how much work I can do and how much profit I can make and how much influence I can accrue to myself. But what's, let, let's keep at this for a minute. Why would deliberately choosing to put limits around those things help us to remember that we're freed from slavery? Why are those connected? Maybe the best way to come at this is the wrong way round. Say a person didn't know how to receive Sabbath. Just, just couldn't do it. I can't do it, Christoph. I can't, I can't stop. I have, to, I have to keep working. I have to keep doing. I have to keep busy. 
If a person didn't know how to take a break for, for the sake of their body and for the sake of their family and for the sake of their relationships, for the sake of their soul, if they weren't able to do that, we'd have to say they're a slave. There's something that's driving them. There's something that's mastered them that they cannot quite get free of. They're being exploited somehow. They, they might not even see it, but they're being controlled. They're being exploited. Those who can't take a Sabbath are slaves. And those who deny a Sabbath to other people are slave drivers. Tim Keller, when he was preaching on a passage on this passage, he put it like this. He said, whenever we have a choice between making profit and the good of our body, our family, or our community, and our soul, whenever it's a choice between work and money for me and the needs of my employees and customers or the wider community, then I make less. I choose to limit what I take to myself so that I and everyone related to me flourishes. Folks, this new community that Jesus has, has built around himself, it's one that makes choices based on the community and not on self-interest. It's a place where everyone flourishes and all are blessed. So that's work and money, but it's not just with regard to work and money that this new community is different. Have a look, verse 4. It's different with regard to sex and family. To keep the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, to them I'll give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that'll last forever. Okay, let's talk for a second about castration in Israel in the times of Isaiah. I mean, who doesn't want to talk about that on a Sunday night? The guys who aren't here tonight will be ripping that they missed this, you know? We talked a couple of weeks ago about barren women in chapter 54. We need to talk about castrated men in chapter 56. Why were men castrated in that culture? You were castrated often as a career choice. It was because you wanted to make it to the very top. You see, if you wanted to work for the king or the pharaoh or the emperor, oftentimes you couldn't have access to the palace or to the places of power without paying this price. Why? Because they didn't trust men at close quarters with their families. A castrated man becomes trustworthy. Castration was the price you paid to advance your career. The ultimate choice of career over family. Castration was forbidden in Israel. The other nations practiced this, but not, not Israel. Because God had something different in mind for his people. He said, you can't put career over family. Relationships matter more 
than wealth and influence in the kingdom where I am king. Now here's where our passage gets interesting in in a way that's a bit like chapter 54 a few weeks ago. Do you remember chapter 54 where Isaiah says, Sing, O barren woman. He's telling us at that point of a community where women could have status and honor and dignity even without children. It was unheard of. Outrageous. It's the same here in chapter 56. He gives the status and the dignity and the honor to men. Look again at verse 5. I'll give them a memorial and a name that's better than sons and daughters. The big thing in that culture was to have a memorial and a name, to have a family tree, to have people after you who can vouch in three generations' time. Yes, there was a guy called Christoph Ebbinghaus. Look, there's his great-grandson. And it was the biggest disgrace for a man in the community not to have sons and daughters in the name. But here's the prophet saying, God saying, I'll give them a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them a name that endures forever. I love this. In these two passages, chapter 54 and 56, our God reveals for once and for all the equal status of a single person with a married person, a person part of a biological family and one who's not because he's got a bigger family, a first family that we all in Christ have a part in. Stanley Hauerwas, the theologian and writer, says that these passages teach us a lot about the Christian position on sex and family. He says, one of the clear differences between Christianity and other traditional religions was that singleness was legitimated. Jesus Christ was single. St. Paul was single. Hauerwas is saying here what we preached when we preached a, a sermon series on family a number of years ago. Your primary identity, whoever you are, is not in your biological family. It's in the new community of Jesus Christ, the family to which all belong equally in him. This means that those of us who are part of biological families that are somewhat like we might have wished, we're not to make an idol of that because it's not the be-all and end-all. It means that those of us who aren't in a biological family place that we might have chosen for ourselves are not to despair because we're part of a family that gives us a greater dignity by far in the eyes of God, the brothers and sisters and mothers with Jesus Christ. Wow. This really is a very different kind of a community. So this community is different on work and money. It's different on sex and family. There's a third place where this new community is different. And with this we finish. It's a, it's a community 
that has different values about race and inclusion. Look again at verse 3. It says there, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Isaiah has given us a picture of the future of the church. It's easier actually for us to get this than for the first guys who heard it. It must have sounded just incredible. You see, whenever we read the whole of the Old Testament, we get this story of the widening circles of the family of God. Think about it. Just, just the very... It starts with Abraham, doesn't it? He chooses one guy, says, I'm going to bless you. But immediately he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your family. So it's Abraham, it's Abraham's family. By the time you get to Moses, it's, it's the nation, the people of Israel. But now... By the time we get to Isaiah, it's the next ripple in the pond. The time is coming when there won't be any outsiders anymore. Anybody who wants can find their place in this kingdom of God. Folks, this is the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. One of the amazing things that you'd find, if you read the book of Acts, the the story of the birth of, of the church, you'd see all these incredible prophecies from Isaiah 54, 5, and 6 all coming true. Acts feels a bit like a commentary on these passages. Let me show you a couple of things. So in Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Did they do it? We always think that, you know, the early church, they were amazing, they were great. Did they do it? No. Stayed in Jerusalem. We like it here. We're comfortable here. He had to, God had to introduce persecution. Uh, later on in Acts chapter 8, we begin to read about that. And only then do they get moving. I'm quite heartened by that, that we're not the only slow obeyers in the history of the people of God. It's amazing though what happens then. Chapter 8, the first person they ever reach with the gospel. Do you remember? We thought about it two sermons ago before Christmas when we looked at chapter 53. Who was it who was reading the scroll in his chariot, who heard the good news, who had the gospel explained to him and immediately asked to be baptized? Who was it? The Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian eunuch. How's that for Isaiah 56 verse 3? Ethiopian eunuch. Wow. Least likely guy ever to be welcomed into the community of the people of God. First guy in brilliant. Acts chapter 16 is another brilliant commentary on these passages. Uh, uh, By the time you get to Acts 16, Paul has taken his mission to Philippi. He's preached in Philippi, and we hear of people coming to faith, and you might remember some of their stories. There's Lydia. She's in fashion retail. There's the fortune teller slave girl. There's the guy who runs the jail in Philippi. All come to Christ. There was this prayer that Jewish men used to pray 
um, round about, well, we, we certainly know it in a couple of centuries after the time of Paul and, and Jesus. We don't know if we can trace it right the way back. Who knows? Maybe they were praying it in Paul's day too. A Jewish man gets up in the morning and he prays this prayer. He says, thank you, God, that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a foreigner. That's what he prays. And then we read Acts chapter 16, and we see Lydia. We see the slave girl. We see the Philippian jailer, a Roman Do you see what God's saying here in Isaiah and in Acts? He's saying, listen, the world's full of racism and other isms. It's full of boundaries and walls. But the gospel of Jesus Christ flattens those. Whatever borders appear to be closed, they're thrown wide open. This kingdom of God is for all comers. Anyone who'll come and meet me in my son, Jesus Christ. We, we can say, just like Paul said to that Philippian jailer, we can say to anybody, no matter what their ethnicity, no matter what their current religion, no matter what their socioeconomic background, no matter what, we can say to them, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Folks, for too long in our churches, we've allowed the walls that are in the culture to still exist in our church. We've allowed walls to stand that Jesus has flattened. Walls between rich and poor, nationalist and unionist, leave and remain, left and right. These boundaries have no place in the new community, the kingdom of God. Folks, we need to, to wrap things up for this evening. We're talking here about a new community in these opening verses, particularly of chapter 56. It's a community that puts people before profit, values every person regardless of their gender or their family status, a kingdom with no borders, welcoming all. Wouldn't it shine? Wouldn't it really look like a light in a dark world? This is what Jesus came to create. Even in these in-between times, this is what he wants to form in you and in me and in us together. He wants to make us into the light of the world. Let's pray and ask for his help to be what he's called us to be.